All right, if you will turn in your Bibles to Psalm 118. And once you have turned there, Psalm 118, if you will stand with me for the reading of God's Word. God's Word says this, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. So as Max gave a little preface, we have stopped our study in Luke for the next month or two, and we are now working through some of the Psalms. And what we do at Rua Church is we work through the book of the Bible, verse by verse, line, line by line, chapter by chapter, until we get through it, until we get to breaks like this for, to work through Psalms. And so for the next month or two, we'll, each week we'll have a psalm, and we'll just preach through a psalm until we remain a return to our study in Luke. And so Psalm 118, tonight, and the title of this message is, His Love Endures Forever Through Jesus Christ. And Psalm 118 is the most quoted psalm in the whole New Testament. And I can thank uh, Dr. Steve Lawson for the information here, but it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's referenced or quoted at least 12 times. And for a psalm to be quoted this much, it must be significant, right? The Gospel of Matthew quotes this psalm three different times in just the 21st chapter alone. Peter quotes this psalm in his epistle. Paul references it in his letter to the Ephesians. But what sets the psalm apart? Why is this the most quoted psalm in the New Testament? Why is it so significant that Martin Luther would claim this as his favorite psalm of the whole Psalter? The 150 psalms, and he says he has deemed it as his favorite. 
Why, why would this be his favorite? Why is this the, one of the most significant psalms in the whole Psalter? And I think that it is because it drives our affections towards God's love. And I submit to you that there are parts of this psalm that we all can glean from today. It has a liturgical flow to it, a liturgical structure of the psalm, and there may be spots where you feel like it doesn't directly pertain to you, but do lean in because I truly believe there is something in the psalm for every single one in this room. Do you need encouragement today? You can find it here. Do you need conviction today? You may not think so, but you can find it here. Do you need to thank God today? You can find thankfulness for Him here. Do you need to trust God today? You can find trust in the Lord here. Do you need God's strength for the trials in your life? You can find it here. Whatever you're in need of spiritually, you can find it in Psalm 118. No matter if you've been recently legalistic or a loyal follower, whether you've been skeptical or strong in the faith, whether you've been graceless or grace-filled, the Lord has something for you in this psalm. There's something for everyone that everyone can glean from Psalm 118. And you might have noticed as I read through the psalm or as you might be looking at it, the first verse and the last verse are the exact same line. And this is intentional. It's a literary device called an inclusio. And I don't just tell you this for boring information to show you that I know stuff. I tell you this because it's really important to know what the psalm is about. That often when we are studying scripture, we look to the structure of the text to tell us what the emphasis is. But when we have an inclusio, bookending statement, that tells us what the emphasis of the whole text is. That everything in between those two statements is driving towards the main point. That is, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. So this is the emphasis of the text. This is the thrust of the whole thing. That every single verse within those two verses, verse 1 and verse 29, is all pointing to the fact that God is good and that His steadfast love endures forever. The psalmist gives many attributes of God throughout the whole text that he helps to advance this argument that God is good and that his steadfast love endures forever. And we see that God answers the call when we call upon him, that God is on our side, God is our help, he is our refuge, our protector, our strength, that he holds the gates of righteousness, he is our deliverance, he is our salvation, he does valiantly, he disciplines his people. He is the maker of days. He's the giver of success. He makes his light to shine upon his people. He is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And my hope and my aim today is threefold. I hope that the psalm would give you one, more confidence in God's love. Two, a stronger practice of thankfulness for God's love. And three, more reason to delight in God's love through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I'll just repeat those one more time, that I hope this psalm would give you more confidence in God's love, a stronger practice of thankfulness for God's love, and more of a reason to delight in God's love through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And I think that if you aren't convinced of God's enduring love through Jesus Christ, none of these things will happen. So I hope that today you can be convinced of God's enduring love for us, for his people tonight. So this psalm begins with a call to worship. As I said previously, it's a liturgical psalm, so it follows a structure and a form to it. And it's this call to worship. So it's the first four verses, and it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. 
Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. As I said, this is a call to worship. And the reason for the call to worship is because this is a psalm of thanksgiving, that it is held at, it is said at feasts, at the Sabbath, at celebrations. And so he's calling the people to worship the Lord before he goes in to recite all that he's thankful for, for the work of the Lord in his life. He's calling the people to worship. We actually see this psalm quoted in the book of Ezra right after Israel comes out of exile and they're rebuilding the temple as they lay the first foundational stone. Ezra 3.10 says this, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. So this psalm is recited at, at feasts, at the Sabbath, at celebrations, to remind everyone that the Lord is good and that his steadfast love endures forever. So this is the call to give thanks to God, in particular for his love. And it is his hesed love that is in this text in, in the Hebrew. And some of you might be familiar with the term hesed love. And if you're not familiar with it, it's the word that is often described to use God's covenantal love, to describe his love that he has specifically for his people. And translators often have a hard time translating this similarly, that all across the board you read in different translations, a little bit of a different form of this because it's so hard to capture. In the ESV, it has steadfast love, as you see in many of your Bibles. In other translations, it has as God's loving kindness, His mercy, His loyal love, His loving devotion, His faithful love, and the list goes on and on. The bottom line, what we can deduct from this is that it's hard to capture God's love for His people in words. No two people translate it the same because it's so hard to describe God's covenantal, faithful, enduring love for His people. And this is what we are called to worship, God's love being at the center of our worship. And this is similar to what we do at the beginning of every service today. Max read an excerpt from a psalm and called everyone to worship, that all the people in this room we hope would come to worship the Lord, just as the psalmist says, let Israel say, let God's chosen nation, let the house of Aaron say, the priestly line, and let all who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. And that is the hope is that all who are in the room, all who come to know the Lord, all who have the chance to know the Lord, would bow the knee to the Yahweh and worship him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the psalmist continues after the call to worship, moving into a time of adoration, uh, saying in verse 5, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. And right away, the psalmist gives us a glimpse of God's steadfast love working through a trial in his life, working through adversity in his life. And he tells of the Lord's faithfulness to answer when he called the triumph over the opposition of the surrounding tribes and surrounding nations around Israel. And this is a wonderful truth, isn't it? That God answers us when we call upon him, that we have a God that cares enough for us that we need not worry if he is on our side during our suffering, that he is there. He tells us in his word that he answers when we call. We have a God who is on our side, who answers when we call, but we must call upon him. Sometimes in the midst of distress, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of adversity in our lives, it's easy to be overwhelmed by everything that's going on, that it takes our gaze off of God and unto 
our trials and our adversity in our life and we don't run to the Lord in prayer when this should actually be our first line of defense. We should sound like David in Psalm 34 when he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This should be our response when we are faced with trials, not wallowing in what is going on, not being overwhelmed by the adversity, not being overcome by the trials, but running to the Lord knowing that he answers when we call. Do you feel distressed? Do you feel depressed? You can call upon the Lord. Are you anxious? Is the adversity in your life overwhelming you? You can call upon the Lord. His love endures forever, and He is good. And He might answer your call on different timing than you would like Him to, but His timing is greater than our timing anyways. God is on our side, and this rhetorical question of what can man do to me is exactly what it is, a rhetorical question. It's knowing that if God is on our side, that no man no tribe, no nation, no, no adversity can overcome us if God is on our side. And we most definitely should not fear anything. The man has no power over God. With God on our side, we get to look and triumph over all adversity. And I hope this gives you confidence in God's love for you, that you can stand in the midst of trial, in the midst of adversity, and call upon the Lord that He is on your side, that He is your help and your protector. And the psalmist continues with the response of a wisdom principle to God's great help in the following verses. Verses 8 and 9 says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And these verses are not just a wisdom principle, although it is wise practice to put this into play in your life. It's one of Israel's battle cries. They take refuge in the Lord, not trusting and other men. David writes in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This isn't just a rule of thumb. It's a way of life for Israel and ought to be a way of life for us as well, that we don't trust in men, we don't trust in princes, we take refuge in the Lord. The Lord is our refuge. Do you really trust Him to be your refuge? Can you stand confidently with Paul and say that you know that for those who love God, all things work together for good? Do you trust God to be your refuge? Trusting in Him to be a refuge goes hand in hand with believing that He is good and that His love endures forever. And it's easy to think of worldly examples if we look at this verse, um, to better take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man or to trust in princes and to think, oh, of course, we shouldn't put our trust in politics or we shouldn't put our trust in our boss or certain world leaders. Um, it's, it's wise to trust in the Lord more than them. But I think that goes even beyond just world leaders and the surrounding nations. I think it even goes to where we seek counsel. That often we go to people first to seek counsel before we go to the Lord's word and to prayer and communion with him. Although wise counsel isn't a bad thing, it is not our first line of defense. The Lord's word and prayer and communion with him is where we go first. And then we see wise counsel as a gift that helps to inform what we see in his word, but we don't go to wise counsel first. We don't trust in men over the Lord. We take refuge in the Lord. I think the same thing is true too for where we find our comfort in life. So many people find their comfort in their family or their relationships or their friendships, and that is where they find their value. That's where they are most comfortable. That is where they trust the most is their relationships with loved ones. And as good as those things are, is not as good as the Lord being our refuge. We must trust that God is our refuge, that He is our fortress, that He is our protection, He is our wisdom, 
and remember that the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And as the application of that text can be found where we trust our wisdom and our guidance and where we have comfort in people, the immediate context is the refuge that God is in the midst of the oppressing nations that we see in verses 10 through 13. And it says this, All nations surrounded me in the name of the Lord. I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. And this is the psalmist retelling in response to God's protection amidst the adversity that's going on in his life. It is adoration for God's sovereign intervening in his life. And that's what this large section in the middle of this is, is the psalmist's adoration for God. He's called people to worship. Now he's calling them to adore and to praise the Lord and to remember the wondrous works of the Lord in his life. And this is a, a humble state of recognition. This is a king retelling this psalm or reciting this psalm. It could be David or it could be one of Israel's other kings, uh, but it is still a king nonetheless. And he recognizes his need for God's deliverance amidst all the trials of the surrounding nation. He needs deliverance from the Lord that he can't do it on his own. And this is how our hearts ought to be as we endure and as we persevere through trials. Knowing this to be true about God, it also ought to lead our hearts to worship and to praise him for his goodness. That he is the one that leads us out of our trials. He's the one that gives deliverance to us in the midst of adversity. It's not our own strength and our own power that gets us out. It is the strength in the hand and the help of the Lord. And if you notice the imagery here in verse 12, the nations were like a swarm of bees encompassing Israel. That just doesn't sound like a very comfortable situation to be in for the Israelites. But we see the work of the Lord right after that, and that they went out like a fire among thorns. And this picture might be a little lost on us. And if we want you to think about a dried up thorn bush, not just a thorn that pricks you, but a thorn bush that is set on fire and Within minutes, it is down to a smolder, that it is effective and fast, the Lord's deliverance and protection for his people. And that's how effective God's love always is. It always accomplishes all that he wants it to do. Are you thankful to God for his help, for his deliverance, for his protection in your life? Do you remember and recall the amount of deliverance and protection and preservation he has given you? throughout your life? Do you have the same humble posture as a psalmist in the midst of adversity, in the midst of deliverance, in the midst of triumph? Do you see how good it is that God is present and our present help in distress? If you don't have a habit of this already, be sure to frequently recall and recount the works of deliverance and protection the Lord has given to you. This will help you to truly see that God is good and that his love endures forever, not just for some people a long time ago, not just for you at one point in your life when you once were lost but now you're found, but every single day, every single week, every single year, um, the Lord gives protection to his people. And our prayer life should sound much like David's in Psalm 9 when he says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. And remember as verse 6 in Psalm 118 told us, God is on our side. He's there to be our help. He's there to be our strength. And the Psalms continues in the following verses describing the greatness of the deliverance that Yahweh gave to him. In verses 14 through 16, it says this, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. 
The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. This is the kind of help that the Lord offers to his people. That he isn't in your back pocket to pull out when you need him. He isn't just a stable pillar that we can lean on when we need support. He is our strength. He is the source of our strength. and He is the executor of our strength. And this is no simple assistance from God. It is a full deliverance from God. He is our help. I think when, at least when I read this word, and I think when many read this word help, it's easy to think of help as when someone helps you with a math problem and you're stumped, you don't know how to get to the bottom of it, and someone comes and helps guide you and lead you along the way to understanding what the problem is. But God's help is far greater than that. It can be as small as that, but it's far greater than that. It's even more than if you need to carry a piano with a friend and you know absolutely you can't lift it on your own, and so you get one, two, three, four, five people to help you. It's similar to the strength that the Lord provides, but it's far greater than just help moving a piano. God's help and God's strength is far greater than we can ever understand. He gives us this great and full and true deliverance that is this wonderful help. It's not, not a simple help. It is a wonderful, profound help that he offers to us. And the psalmist was in a lowly state, but thanks be to God, he is now walking in the strength of the Lord in victory and deliverance and triumph over his enemies. The psalmist states that God is his song. But what is he mean by this? How can God be someone's song? His imagery helps to indicate that the credit of the full deliverance is to be given only to God, but he gets even deeper to what his soul longs for, what his soul sings for, what his soul truly believes and thinks and ponders throughout the day, and it is the soul is singing the song of God and God's praises day by day, hour by hour, and that is how God is the psalmist's song and my fear is that for many people and what is often encouraged in our society, their song sounds a lot like the words of Aloe Black. And he says, you can tell everybody. Yeah, you can tell everybody. Go ahead and tell everybody. I'm the man. I'm the man. I'm the man. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And as it might be a little bit of a joke, it's very true in that people want to be their own deliverance. People want to be their own God. People want to be their own help. People want to be the man. But when you are a child of God, when you are one of God's people, you are not the man God is. Our, the song of our soul shall rather sound more like praise God from whom all blessings flow, not I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. So is your song resounding more of the Lord being your strength, more of the Lord being your salvation, or more of yourself. You can self-assess this by looking at conversations you have with people when, you are going, when things are going well or when things are going poorly. Do you credit God with any blessings in your life, or are you still partially convinced that it was your own glory story? We must search our hearts to see, do we sing God's praises more, or do we sing our praises more? And the psalmist credits the valiant triumph to God, not to himself, and he's the leader of Israel. He's the king of Israel. He's led this nation through the help of the Lord, but he gives full credit to the Lord. He doesn't take any of the credit to himself. And this humble state of the psalmist is something we ought to embody. And we should take a posture of humility that God may receive exaltation. Whose praises do you sing? And the psalmist 
proceeds in his thankfulness to the Lord in verse 17 and 18, saying, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And psalmist recognizes that he must recount the deeds of the Lord. As long as he lives, he will tell of the wondrous works of God in his life. So how easily can you recall the work of God in your life over the last week, over the last month, over the last year? Is it easy for you to call or to recall all that God has done, or is it harder for you to find where God has displayed his sovereignty in your life? Do you view your past trials with a victim mentality or a victor mentality? If you approach past trials and adversity that you have now, have now received perseverance and you've endured through, you're out of, but you still talk about them with a victim mentality, it strips God of all the glory that is due his name. And this doesn't mean that we can't recognize pain and hurt that is caused by past trials and past adversity and past hurts. There is pain and there is hurt. But when we have persevered and we have endured, when God has brought us out of it, we can stand with a victor's mentality and give glory to God. And because when we stand with a victim's mentality, it strips God of all his glory. So we must have a heart posture and a mentality to give God the glory. Even in the midst of trials and sufferings that are really, really hard, we still can find ways to give God credit through as he helps us to endure and persevere to the end of those. If God truly is our strength and our song, we can rejoice as victors over our trials, not mourn as victims of them. And it says that God has disciplined the psalmist severely. And God's discipline is, is a theme often seen in Scripture. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. The Lord reproves him who he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. And God uses discipline often to teach his people a lesson. And we are not to view all of our trials as a bad thing, as, although there are trials and bad things that happen as a result of the fall and as a result of sin in this world. There are times where God uses trials in our life to teach us a lesson that we can endure and persevere and come out on the other end a better follower of God, a better Christ follower, a better believer, um, having been taught and having been disciplined through the midst of a hard trial. And the psalmist continues on uh, now with this temple and processional imagery as he enters in the gates of Jerusalem and proceeds to the temple mount and he goes to offer a sacrifice to the priest at the temple and says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. And just before this, we saw the account that God had disciplined the king and now he's entering in through the gates of righteousness into the city to worship God. And he says that this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. And there's, a, there's another common theme in scripture that as God disciplines, he grows people in to righteousness. And the book of James speak to this, speaks to this in chapter 1. Verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And this is the righteousness that God provides with us, provides us with through trials, through enduring, through persevering, is steadfastness. But steadfastness in what? It is steadfastness in faith. 
And what does perseverance and faith produce? It produces righteousness. And our trials and God's discipline in our lives bring about a holiness that nothing other than enduring in the faith can bring about. These trials and the discipline and the life of faith that we walk through that is often challenging and hard and confronts you and beats you down sometimes is all to make us a more holy people for our Lord. And the psalmist has now come to the temple to worship God for his provision and for his deliverance in his life through the midst of the trials, through the midst of the discipline. And I find it necessary to address the word salvation that we often see throughout this psalm. And you might have noticed that there's times where I've replaced the word with deliverance or paired it with the word deliverance because that gives a better indication for us as to what it actually means as we think in our world today when we hear the word salvation, it almost is always thinking of an eternal salvation. But in this context alone, it is talking about salvation from trial, salvation from the opposition of the enemy and the surrounding nations, that it is a temporary deliverance, not necessarily an internal salvation. It would be uncommon for us to persevere and to make it through trial. The Christ is our God and we give thanks to him that he is our God and we will extol him. That we give thanks to Christ for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And this is all good, wonderful attributes that Christ now portrays and amplifies and typifies in the New Testament. But there's still, there's still one problem. And if you turn back to Matthew 21, we will see what the problem is with those who have rejected the cornerstone. Christ says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. It will be taken away from those who reject the cornerstone. And as we look through Psalm 118 and see, see the goodness and the wonderful things that God does, that Christ does, it often can make us ponder why anyone would reject Christ as the cornerstone? Why would someone not want our help in distress? Why would someone not want God the Son incarnate on our side? Why would someone not want someone who's a better refuge than man or princes? Why would not someone want Christ to be their strength and their song? Why would someone not want Christ to be their salvation? And it's simple. It's a hard pill to swallow. That God's appointed means of salvation is always rejected by a prideful heart. As crazy as it sounds, many people don't like the idea of being saved by faith alone. Many people want to feel like they have to earn their salvation. They want their song to be one of their own deliverance, one of their own accomplishments, one of their own salvation, not one of Christ's salvation. People don't want to repent of their sins and recognize that they stand guilty before a just God. As good as Christ can be, a prideful heart rejects the appointed means of salvation that God has given through Christ. People want to say that they are the man, and they less likely, they would rather not say that God is their strength. But this should motivate us, and it should drive us to truly believe in, to rest in, to dwell in the fact that God is good, and that His steadfast love endures forever through Christ. The Christ came born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a sinner's death, and then he was risen from the grave so that people may have eternal life in him, but they must repent of their sins first. And for, for those of you who know and have experienced this love of Christ in your life, it is 
the richest and the best love and mercy and story that anyone could ever take part in. But still, a prideful heart does not want to let someone else be their Savior. If we don't really delight in the fact that Christ is our Savior, that Christ is our deliverer, that He is our salvation, we're going to have a really hard time encouraging anyone else to do the same. So we must delight in the salvation that Christ has brought for His people. And for you believers in the room who have endured and been consistent and persevered in the faith for as long as you have been, I encourage you to delight in God's goodness, delight in His steadfast love. And your response to this glorious truth ought to be worship like that what the psalmist does in verse 27. You offer a sacrifice to the Lord, except now our sacrifice looks much different than what it did back then. Paul says in Romans 12, 1, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So now we no longer offer a peace offering with an animal. We offer a peace offering with our lives. That Christ's sacrifice was the sin offering, and now our lives are a living sacrifice as the peace offering, that we live unto God and we live a life that is holy and pleasing to God. And that is our spiritual worship. If you turn with me to 1 Peter 2, this is where I will close. And Peter quotes Psalm 118 and gives a little bit of encouragement to believers. And I find it fitting to close our time with this today. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 4. Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word and they were destined to, as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. This is God's character. He is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Now, through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are good and that your love does endure forever and that this psalm is a small testimony to your enduring love and your persevering love that you have for your people. We thank you that Christ is a greater type and greater fulfillment of this, that we can still count on temporary deliverance and temporary salvation, but even more so through the blood of Christ, we can count on an eternal deliverance and eternal salvation through, through his person and through his work. So we thank you for that rich and glorious truth. Give us faith to believe that. Give us faith to delight in that this week. Um, and just give us um, a greater love for you that, that spurs on our worship, that encourages us day by day. In your name we pray. Amen.